Well, on Easter Sunday, we ought to all be able to say together definitively and with great gusto, love wins. What a great picture of the love of the Father that we have on Easter Sunday. Mike Glenn is one of the big voices in American Christianity these days, pastors of church uh, in Tennessee. And I was reading some of the stuff that he wrote not too long ago. I went to one of his... uh, Conference, or I went to a conference where he was speaking and was taken with him. And so uh, when I see him writing something, I generally try to read it. And uh, he was given an example out of his days in college. And uh, he said, said that uh, apparently he was in one of these animal house type fraternities. And uh, so they all lived together in this one home, the guys in his fraternity. And uh, they had a common professor, and this particular professor was known for giving final exams that were just a single question. And the question itself, in order to answer it correctly, you had to pull everything that you had learned the whole semester in that course. And so those guys in that uh, fraternity house kind of began to play this game from semester to semester about what the question would be. And they were smart enough, for the most part, not to uh, bank on what their answer to that was, but they still tried to figure out what's the question going to be. But one time, this one guy, according to Mike Glenn, uh, had had that professor often enough that he decided he knew how the professor thought. And so he said, I believe that the final question for the exam will be this question. And he believed it so strongly that he studied his own question for the final exam. You know how that ends up, right? He walked in the class, and it was a different question, and he was sunk. That prompts me today to wonder a little bit about American Christianity and our focus at Easter. I think that the question that most Christians tend to want to answer at Easter time is what happened to Jesus. What happened on Easter? But I'll submit to you that I believe that's the wrong question. Well, maybe I need to be careful here. It's not so much that it's the wrong question. It's just not the best question for us to ask on Easter. I've been watching over the last week or so in the spin-up to Easter in American Christianity. And I've been watching things like Facebook. Don't let that scare you. Uh, Some of you who post and stuff on there, this is not one of those things where I'm picking as much as it is more that I I think it's a good time for us to broaden our perspective when it comes to Easter. I've watched especially on Twitter and uh, some of those other things and network TV and some of that. And I watch the emphasis on Easter and it seems like as American Christians, we are fascinated with answering the question, what happened to Jesus on Easter? The reason I think that's not totally the best focus is because we know the answer to that. Don't we? Hello? What happened to Jesus on Easter? See, even in our little, nice, little, comfortable Christian culture way, we have ways that we say that. It's code speak. So we expect on Easter Sunday somebody to say, He is risen. And what's the response that we're pre-programmed to give? He is risen indeed. In other words, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not so sure that we have looked at this 
well, I put it in the terms of Mike Glenn's classmate. Maybe we're studying the wrong question for Easter's test. We know what happened on Easter. We celebrate that, and we should celebrate that. Maybe the better question is, what difference does Easter make? You see, that's different. Because you can't give a programmed answer if you're going to answer honestly with that. Well, at least when you apply it to yourself. I, I know that the right answer to that one is, well, if, if it weren't for Easter, in other words, the, the, the difference that Easter makes is I now can be freed from death. We've sung about that. We've seen that visually in this service already. We celebrate that. Jesus conquered death. That's a good place for an amen. Okay? Oh, no, you missed your chance. Don't come in after the. That's truth, and we want to embrace that. We need to celebrate that. But too often, I'm afraid, we celebrate that, and then we leave it sitting there until Christmas rolls around, and then we're reminded that we need to celebrate his birth. Interesting, those two together. This past Wednesday night was my turn in the rotation in our Wednesday night Awana program. Uh, it was my turn to do the Bible story. Now, if you don't know what this is, uh, for a guy like me, this is a day's worth of preparation for 20 minutes, all right? And so we cycle our kids in, and so we bring them in. So the two oldest sets of kids, when they came in, uh, I told them that we were going to be doing the same thing in there, as versus Scripture anyway, with what I was going to be preaching today. And I, asked, I set them up, okay? Kids are harder to set up than their parents are sometimes, but in this case, I asked this question, what are your three favorite days of the year? Anybody want to guess what the number one, no matter which group of kids it was, what's the number one favorite day of the year for a kid? Christmas. Second, anybody take a guess? Birthday. Right? Now, then we had some smart aleck children in there who knew the season and knew that it was peep night. Uh, if you're from the hood, it's not that kind of peeps. It's, um, it was peep night on Wednesday night, and so they knew that it was Easter season, so some of them threw Easter out there, so I circled back around and I caught them later. The third one, <laughs> what, anybody just want to take it? Easter's off the table, okay? It was not in their top three. Halloween was one of the ones mentioned. Thanksgiving never got mentioned. The last day of school. Except for one young man, and he is forever one of my new favorite kids. Because I said, what's your favorite, favorite day of the year? And he named September something. And I was going, what? And I, so I asked him, I said, what is that? He said, that's the first day of duck season. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm talking about. Easter didn't make the top three. Even for the ones who said it in, at first, when I came back around and circled around, Easter doesn't make the top. And so my response to them was, and my response to you is, shouldn't Easter always be our favorite day of the year? If what we say we celebrate on Easter is really true, now by the way, parentheses here, it is really true. Now you may not live like it's really true every day, but it is really true. Jesus really did Rise from the dead, conquering sin and death in the process. That should be our all-time, every-time favorite day of the year. But it doesn't make the top three. Rarely does it make the top three for us. 
As a matter of fact, I kind of tend to believe that a lot of the times Jesus, as far as we're concerned, conquered sin and rose from the dead only to go into hiding in our everyday lives. Too quickly, I think, we lock him into the text of Scripture rather than letting him loose into the details of our living. And so we live dead lives, even Christians. We'll, we'll certainly come to church and celebrate Easter and we get all of the right language and all the right music and we get all of those things right. But more often than not, I'm afraid that American Christians walk out of an Easter celebration back into lives that are full of death because they don't really let the resurrection matter every day. I wonder, after watching Christians and churchians you know what a churchian is, right? It's that person who goes to church all the time, knows all the right answers, they just don't really live like Jesus is alive. After watching ch- Christians and churchians for almost, well, over 50 years now, watching the incredible meanness that happens among God's people. You know the meanness I'm talking about? People like that church up in, what is it, Kansas, who decided that it was the right thing to do to protest everything that came down the pike because they just flat hate people in the name of God, of course. My experience has been in every church I've ever been a part of in all of my life, some of those hate hate mongers are liberally sprinkled into the congregations of American churches. And Easter's just a day on the calendar. After watching that among God's people. By the way, I know that chances are good in a crowd like this. Many of you sitting in here have been damaged by Christian people. In the name of Christ, you've been attacked. I see that. And I wonder that if Jesus were given the opportunity to do it again or not, I wonder if he would do it all again given the way church people have damaged his love. Of course, I know the answer to that. You do too. The answer is, of course, he would do it again. Absolutely no question about it. The reason he would do it again is because of what motivated him to do it in the first place. John 3.16, our text for the day. I told Teresa, as far as I know, I've never preached on this text before. They tell us in preacher circles the most dangerous text for a preacher to choose to preach on is the one that everybody knows. And everybody knows this one. So let's look here. And if you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 3. We're going to be in that general area some. We'll have these passages on the screen for you as we go in case you didn't bring a Bible and and that's fine. But but here's the deal. John 3.16. Let me summarize it before, uh, before I even read it. Let me summarize it for you. Are you ready for this? Love wins. For God so loved the world. I'm going to stop for a second and I want to challenge the way we read this because typically when we come to this passage, if we have it memorized, we don't even think about what it means. We just rattle it off. And we get a little uptight if the other person didn't 
memorize it in the same language that we did. You know, the, one of those languages, those foreign languages, the whosoever and believeth in that language, not used a whole lot anymore. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, we're going to pick this apart in a little bit, but I want to slow down enough and I want to plow deeply with you for long enough here at the very beginning that we let this set in on us. This is the significance of Easter. For God so loved you and me and us that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to use some terminology here that I want to make sure we're together, okay? Because typically on Easter we talk about resurrection, and, and that's okay. But the resurrection is itself is intimately attached to what we call the cross event. Sunday is a huge thing, this resurrection from the dead. But the Friday part of this, the the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion part of this is what gives the resurrection even more meaning for us. God so loved us that he let his son, God in the flesh, die so that you could live. That's a huge statement. The cross event. I was reading this week a story of, a, of an individual. Yeah, um, in case you don't know, our family is doing wedding stuff. Okay, I told the early service, the 8.30 service, that Teresa and I, are, are, we've been living together for all these years. We're going to get married and see if it works out. Okay? <laughs> well, we have been living together. We got married a long time ago, just for the record. Okay? In case some of you are going, oh, my goodness, how did we get this knucklehead? No, we've been married for decades, right? Our daughter is about to get married, we think, uh, in June. So far, it's planned in June. And uh, so we, we have wedding on the brain at our house. Nothing happens, but it doesn't have some wedding connotation to it, all right? And so because of that, as I'm reading and doing some of the stuff that I do, I, I'm sensitive to wedding stuff when I read it. And so uh, this particular story comes to us out of the state of Indiana, and it involves a young man and his brand-new bride. This is as new a married couple as you can get. They left their wedding and the reception, and they left to go to their honeymoon. And on their way during the winter months in Indiana, this young couple come across a vehicle that is stranded in the snow. And there is a single woman standing there next to the car. This young man, newly married, as newly as you can get, looks at his new bride and he says, I have to help her. She's stranded out here. She'll freeze to death. I need to help her deal with this. So he moves his car off. He goes and he helps her. And in the process of helping her get her car out of the snow, he gets hit by another car. And then another. And then another. And he's dead. In our heads, we think, how tragic. A bride only hours into married life is now suddenly a widow. How tragic. But our mind also goes to how noble of that young man to do that, to put himself on the line. But you see, for us as Christians, that's not that big of a deal. 
It's not brand new information to us because we have a passage of Scripture over in John chapter 15 and verse 13 where Jesus himself says this, Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Happy Easter to you. But you see, those kind of things are just part of the landscape of Easter for many Christian people. We we know the truths are out there and we get them and we even like to pull them off the shelf and rub them a little bit during the Easter season, but they inevitably tend up back to be back on the shelves. Maybe part of what we're missing in this whole Easter equation is this love part of John 3.16. Let me give you a working definition of love. Now, this is important that you get this because today is not only an Easter message, it's also the beginning message of a fairly long series that we're going to do. How should we behave ourselves in the church? And the answer to that is love has to drive us. So let's get a working definition of love out on the table. Love, and especially as we find pictured for us in John 3.16, is God reaching across the void and investing himself into us. But that's not enough. That doesn't totally catch it, right? What God's love as he invested in us, what it does for us is it elevates us beyond where we could ever go on our own. The cost of sin, the price of sin for us is such that it kept us separated from God. And listen, that doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a person. It's just a reality for all of us. Sin separates us from a holy God. We're born with a sin nature. We're separated from him. God reaches across that void because of his love, and he grabs us and he lifts us up to a place we could not ever get on our own. That's love. That's the same love when I sit down with couples who are considering marriage and I, or considering whether they're going to stay in marriage. I say to them, you have to love like that. It is not about you feeling good because of somebody else. Love is God reaching across and elevating us to a level we could never get to on our own. God so loved you. In order... For you to get to that point, Jesus had to die. That's painful. And it's costly. And it's very divine. This week, I had a professional at our house, okay? He's a pest control guy. I had lots of family members here the last couple of weeks, so we had to get the exterminator out to our house and fix some stuff. And... uh, and so I was talking to this guy in the process, and he's an old man, this guy is, about my age. And uh, in our discussions there, uh, I was telling him about my granddaughter. And this smart aleck guy decided I should hear about his grandkids. I don't care about your grandkids. It's about my granddaughter. Listen. <laughs> until, until he told me this true story out of the life of his son and his granddaughter. And this granddaughter of his is probably, I think he said, somewhere between four and seven. He had lots of kids. He kept telling me about all of them. I didn't really care, so I was kind of halfway listening. Uh, Somewhere between four and seven, this particular girl was, and she was in trouble with her daddy. And so her daddy called his daddy, the guy I was talking to, and said, I'm fixing to have to tear her up. 
and he said, go after it. By all means, go after it. Later, he said that in the process of doing that, he was talking to his son about that incident with his, with his daughter, the granddaughter. And he said, in the middle of the discipline that was being given, that little girl turned up and looked at her daddy with tears flowing down her eyes. And she said, daddy, you're hurting me. Sin is kind of like that, you know. And the fix for sin is exactly like that. We know from Scripture that Jesus on the cross, as he paid the price for your sin and mine, Jesus cries out to his Father, Why have you forsaken me? In other words, you're hurting me. There's love. And love wins. The resurrection is great. And we should celebrate that. But don't miss this. The motivation behind the resurrection is simply divine. It is very much a God thing that Jesus hung on a cross was put in a tomb and as the song before we even started reminded us God says get up your time there is done that's love and that kind of love has to make a difference for us it cannot be something that once a year we take off the shelf and let it have preeminence and then we stick it back later that kind of love every day has to matter for us I say that because I see in these guys who followed Jesus, his first followers, that it mattered to them. Look at Simon Peter, for instance. I'll do this very quickly because I know we're just about out of time. But in Acts chapter 3, we have this deal, okay? Uh, I was working through this this week in my own devotional time, and it just kind of jumped off the page for me. Here's Simon Peter and John, two of the early disciples, and they go to this uh, to the temple area, and they're going to go in and do their daily prayer stuff and do, uh, well, we'll see what they're going to do here. So let's read from chapter 3 of Acts, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Let me stop for a second, and let me bring this home. This is the guy who can't do anything for himself. He's playing off of the sensitivities of these Jews as they go to worship because one of the three pillars of Jewish worship was how they treated people like this. We would call it benevolence. And so part of their worship was to help provide for these people. They didn't have social programs like we do. And so this guy positions himself at a strategic point. Simon, Peter, and John are walking in, as are all these other probably thousands of people. And as they go, let me just stop for a second. This is the guy in our day. We don't find him at the temple. We find him at the red lights around. How many times do we see people like that and move our gaze away from them? Suddenly something in your peripheral vision demands your attention rather than make eye, talk, eye contact with that guy. That's kind of us. Not so with Peter. Simon Peter catches his gaze, 
look at us, he says. And the guy, thinking he's fixing to get, see, he doesn't know he's dealing with the Baptist preacher. He thinks he's fixing to get money. Simon Peter is going to tell him otherwise. Verse 5, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. First Baptist preacher right there. But what I do have, I give to you. The name, let me stop for a second. What would motivate Simon Peter to get involved? Love wins. This same Simon Peter who rejected Jesus around a fire during his trial. The same Simon Peter who watched from a distance as Jesus was crucified. The same Simon Peter that Jesus would meet later on a seashore and challenge him, do you really love me? With Simon Peter, love wins. And the only reason he's doing this today is because of what Jesus had done for him. Resurrection matters. It's got to get down in your feet and into your hands and even to what you see. Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now time out for just a second. Do you realize how risky that statement was for him? You go into a crowd of people and find somebody who has a physical malady like that that doctors can't fix, and you tell them to rise up and walk and see how on the, on the bubble you feel like you are in that moment. If this didn't work, Simon Peter's credibility and the whole gospel mission was down the tubes. What would motivate him to get involved at that level with this guy? Love wins. And so he says, take up your stuff and get out of here. He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. Now get the picture. Look at what, does, what love does when we get it right. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Clearly, he's not Baptist. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. How long has it been since Lumberton, Silsby, Kuntz, Greater, Southeast Texas has heard of God doing something in a group of people that caused everybody else to go, wow, check it out, what's going on over there? See, love has a way of getting into your feet, into your hands, and into your life. You can't keep it to yourself. I know that from Simon Peter. I also know it from John. I'm not going to take the time to go through all of it, but John, we find, here's John, the guy with Simon Peter here. He was known as one of the sons of thunder. Another place in Scripture, we find him, John uh, and his brother, and they're walking through with Jesus and they're going through this village. And the villagers don't show Jesus the kind of respect that John believes they should. And so John, totally uh, offended by that, says to Jesus, you know what? Why don't you just give me the word and I'll call down fire from heaven and consume those people. Now see, that's 
he was my family tree. I'm sure that he's related to us. In other words, we'll nuke them. They, they didn't do us right. They didn't do you right, so let's destroy them. Boy, how many church people have that attitude? That same John, years later, very likely the last of the disciples, if not when he writes it soon after that, or one of the last of them for sure. John comes later in his little book we call First John, and he says these words, chapter 4, verse 7, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know love, does not know God because God is love. In other words, John in all of that takes that part of who he was that didn't care a lick about people who disagreed with them. All of a sudden now John comes to the church and he says, we have to love. These guys somehow, what, what was it that they got that we need to get? John chapter 13, last one and I'll be, I'll be done. We'll close here. John chapter 13, here's what Jesus says to those disciples, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, remember, we're in John 3, 16. Now we're in John chapter 13. Here's what Jesus says. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So here's what I want you to get from that. The same love that Jesus applies to you and to me, John 3, 16. The one that cost him his life. The one that moved him to invest himself in us and die a horrific death. That same love, Jesus says, because I have loved you with that, you love other people with that. Happy Easter. Love wins. Unless it doesn't. See, here's the catch in the whole deal. Jesus leaves the choice with us. His love is evident. His love is effective. His love endures. But he gives you and he gives me the very real choice to accept it or reject it. Now, there's the greatest picture of love ever. You would think that God would say, I love you so much, this is best for you, so I'm going to force it on you. But you see, love doesn't force. It just makes available. Love wins. That's what Easter is about. Unless it doesn't. And you have the ability to walk out of this room today rejecting the very love that Jesus offers. Don't be dumb. I love you. I'm not trying to insult you or anything like that. But it's just dumb to take that gift and leave it behind. Let's pray. And as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to bring you to this point of invitation. Jesus makes that offer to you. And every one of us in this room needs that love. You don't understand all of that. But somehow it rings true enough in your hearing that you're sitting here thinking, okay, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with that, but it sounds like I need that.
Let me just tell you, this invitation time, we're going to all stand in just a few moments, but when we do that, the band's going to play and sing, and I'm going to invite you, if you know that you need to respond to the love that God has given you, I'm going to invite you to just come down. We'll talk to you. We'll pray with you. We're not going to embarrass you or push you into any kind of decision. That would be rude and, and very much wrong, and we're not going to do that, but we want to help you understand the implications of Easter. God's love applied in your life will bear much fruit. So I'm going to invite you to just come down and we'll talk. I'm also going to invite us, those of us who know Christ and we've responded to that gift of love, I'm going to invite you to do some real double checking in your own life. Are you treating people with love? Does Resurrection Sunday matter tomorrow for you? And the next day and the next. Look backwards. How many people have been left on the sidelines of your life because this love stuff really is only for a couple of days a year? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I did. And you'll love other people. Father, take this time for your glory. Change lives. The power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.